Okay, so there's a story in um, Jewish literature. It's a story about uh, an elder, a famous elder called Hillel the Elder. Now, he was born about 100 years before Christ was born, and he died about a decade afterwards. And he was challenged. He was a teacher, and he was challenged by a Gentile. And the Gentile challenged him that he told him exactly this. His challenge to teach him the entire Torah during the time that the man could stand on one foot. Now, whether he was being a little sarcastic or perhaps he was just thinking, look, I want you to do this short and not long, we're not told. So uh, Hillel accepted the challenge and he told the man this, that which is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. The rest of the, the, the entire, this, that is the entire Torah, and the rest is commentary. Now go study. Uh, that was a great answer. Um, today, with what we call the golden rule, uh, a lot of people believe it says this, do unto others as they do to you. Well, it's not exactly the, the rule, but it is a, a fairly common interpretation in the workplace and in our society in general. To treat others as they, as they treat you. It's the classical, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. Except each of us are waiting for someone to scratch our back first. But this often plays out in the negative. And how it plays out in the negative is this way. It, it plays out that we're waiting to do something and we do something only when we think the other party will reciprocate which completely misses the point of Christ's teaching. Or others view it this way. If you're mistreated, or even if it's perceived that you are mistreated, then you are to do what? Well, you're to stick it to the other person. You're simply to treat them how they would treat you. The problem with this philosophy, though, is we get into building relationships that are built not on what we give, but on what we get. The outcome results in living in a self-centered universe rather than living in an others-postured, others-centered posture. Our focus this morning is just really going to be one verse, and that verse is Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. In Matthew 7, 12, we read this. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this opportunity to gather together as a family and to spend some time in worship, in focusing in on what you did on the cross for us, and Father, in your word. Help us to push aside the thoughts that may crowd our minds this morning, to truly open our hearts up to the Holy Spirit's working in our lives to allow the Holy Spirit to change attitudes and align our thoughts with Scripture. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, over the years, there's been various adaptations to the golden rule. Almost every religious philosophy has a golden rule. Some of them predate the time of Christ. So Jesus wasn't the first one to say something similar to this. Confucianism says this, 
one should not behave towards others in a way which is disagreeable to oneself. Hinduism. This is the sum of the duty. Do not unto others what you would not have them do unto you. Islam states, No one of you truly believes until you wish for others that which you wish for yourself. And Socrates said this, Do not do to others that which would anger you if others did it to you. But Scripture itself, when we look at Matthew 5.12, we know Matthew 5.12 does not stand out of a context. All Scripture is found in a context. Look with me to the first two words in Matthew 5.12 or 7.12. What are they? So, whatever. So can literally be translated, therefore, then, or so then. In, in the word whatever, if. So whatever, so if, or therefore if, you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law of the prophets. The Christian Standard Bible reads this way, Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them, for this is the law and the prophets. And whenever we read a therefore, it's imperative on us to figure out what it is Therefore, a good starting point this morning is actually to look at the parallel passage of the golden rule in the gospel of Luke. So if you will, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And for the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to the one who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them." If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is it to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and your sons will be, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil, and be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Now, Luke's recording of the of this Sermon on the Mount is greatly abbreviated when you compare it to Matthew's Gospel. And here the golden rule is found shortly after the Beatitudes and immediately following the the four woes which contrasted God's kingdom to the world of first century Israel, that which Christ lived in. But in the wake of the contrast, Jesus begins to discuss relationships. 
And he says, because of all that went before, this is how I want my followers to live out, to treat others. Let's review what he says. In verse 27, show genuine concern for the enemy. Love the unlovely. It's an act of love. Christians are to do moral good toward others, regardless if they love us back. Our love is not to be selective. Verse 28, we are to praise, give thanks to those who speak well or give the, or speak well of those who would wish evil upon us. I think of that great philosopher called Thumper from the movie Bambi when I read this. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. And for some of us, that might be the starting point. We might have trouble speaking well of others. For the first little bit, maybe we take that piece of advice. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. When mistreated, our call is to prayer and not to retaliation. In verse 29, and this has been covered three times since I've been here at this church in less than a year and a half. Yun first preached on it once. I preached on it a few weeks ago, and it was in the family brief. This is an idiom. It's a reference to insult. We're not to escalate matters. We're not to be characterized by being someone who insults another for an insult. But it also could mean that from time to time, we're going to take a slap or a punch. We're going to suffer some physical violence. And we need to know when not to say anything or do anything. We need to have wisdom. And that's why last week we talked about praying for wisdom. In verse 30, the the idea is genuine concern for the needs of others. Living with an open hand of generosity. Leon Morris aptly pointed out for us, a Christian theologian, if Christians took this literally, there would soon be a class of saintly paupers owning nothing and another of prosperous idlers and thieves. We're to live open-handedly, generously towards others. And then comes the golden rule in verse 31. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Missing in Luke's rendition or Luke's record are the words, for this is the law, for this is the law and the prophets. The question I had is, why did, why did Luke not include that? Or is it really missing? Or is it missing in words, but they're in intent? We have to remember, Matthew's audience was a Jewish one. So as Matthew talked about the law and the prophets, they would completely understand what he was referencing to. Perhaps Matthew's readers immediately thought of Leviticus 19.18, where we read this. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. But not so Luke's readers. Luke's readers... They were a Gentile audience, uh, so he takes time to explain the more practical aspects of the sermon, things that they might not know so they could gain a, a fuller understanding of Christ's expectations for all believers. And then in verse 32, we move on. Our love must surpass that of the sinners, those who have yet to come to faith. So sinners even scratch backs of other sinners. And then verse 33, it talks of there's no challenge in loving those who love you. 
Natural man does that. And in verse 34 and 35, lending here is, is not a business loan. Rather, think of lending to a person who's in need to putting food on the table, to making it to the next payday. This is not a command for reckless lending. Rather, it's a call for generosity. A generosity to all, even to that pesky, annoying neighbor. You all have one, don't you? Well, you guys are really quiet today. I have a couple. But anyhow, but we need to be generous to those too. And God rewards such behavior. We're generous without an expectation of receiving back. And remember that God is benevolent and he's kind and he's loving. And he's loving and kind both to the ungrateful and to the evil one. That doesn't negate a final judgment. It's just his character of who he is as he deals with mankind. And then Luke finally ends in verse 36. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. That word merciful in verse 36 in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, comes from the same root word in Hebrew that we translate into English, loving kindness, tender mercies, compassion. Does anyone know what that root word is, by the way? Who said it? I heard it. Well, I'll say it loud, has said. It's has said. It's loving kindness. It's compassion. The New Living translates it this way. You must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. Do you ever look at a, a child going through the hallways here? And they're, they're not with the parent, but you look at the, the child and you go, I know who you belong to. Just looking at them, they're a mini whoever their parent is, whether mom or dad. The question we need to ask ourselves as we wake our way and work through life, when people look at us, do they go, you resemble your heavenly father? Do they see in our lives mercy, that we're full of compassion, loving kindness? Can they see has said worked out in our daily walk? Our lives should resemble our father. And he's all those things. People should be able to look at us and say, hey, I know who you put your faith in because I can see it worked out every day in how you interact with those around you. So Matthew 7.12 shares the same context as Luke 6.31. It's the Sermon on the Mount. But in the Gospel of Matthew, the therefore, so whatever, the if according to scholars, references all the way back to Matthew 5.17 through to Matthew 7.11. That is 12 messages that we've talked about, the last 12. That's three months' worth of teaching. So I want to quick, do a quick recap of all the things Christ taught in that time, of all the things that you and I studied together. We talked about his coming was a fulfillment of the law. Now, does that mean that the Old Testament need to be relegated to the recycle bin? 
Well, no. And we gave reasons why. See, the law is a reflection of the character of God. It's an expression of God's heart. The law explains sin, it exposes sin, and it expresses the need for a Savior. The moral law, nine of the Ten Commandments are reiterated in the New Testament. The only one that miss, that's missing is keeping the Sabbath. The moral law existed prior to Moses and the Mosaic law. People knew it was wrong to worship other, someone other than Yahweh. People understood that murder was wrong. People understood what sexual immorality was. Well, not bound to the Old Covenant, we must remember that the Old Covenant expresses truth. Truth that we can use in our lives. When we talked about Jesus' concern is not only for our actions, but our, our attitudes, for what's inside ourselves, our hearts. There's a, a, a higher call to a moral standard. A higher call to better sexual ethics. Our, our, our commitment to marriage and our, our integrity that we live by. When wronged, we are to resist retaliation. Matthew overlaps Luke in these areas when he talks about loving our enemies, being generous and giving towards the needs of those around us that lack. Our standard of righteousness is to be higher than the religious elites. And that's evidenced by our, our giving, our fasting, our religious piety. It's evidenced in our financial ethics. To whom do we serve? To whom do we trust? Do we trust God or do we trust money? Matthew reminds us of God's care and how we should not be anxious and we should lean into God. Matthew speaks of not living as hypocrites, but to examine ourselves, to guard against a critical spirit, to live prayerfully, asking God for wisdom to live out the gospel in this sinful culture. That's the context of Matthew 7.12. That is the therefore. Because of God's said, because of his kindness towards us, because of his standards of ethics, because of his command to love others, because of his very nature and his moral law, we are to treat others in a way that we would want to be treated. And notice that the command is proactive. It's not reactive we are making the first move. We are the ones that are could begin to scratch the other person's back, not expecting anything in return. Psychologists and counselors will tell us that with inside each one of us, there's this intense desire to be nurtured and loved. One of the issues our society struggle with, struggles with is separating love for man from love for God. See, our society is all for loving man, not so much for loving God. As a church, we can be in danger of doing exactly the same thing, except in reverse. Let me word it another way. I've often spoke of, of love toward our fellow man, Christian and pagan alike. Scripture to me is clear that we're, as followers of Christ, we have a responsibility to seek for the welfare of others, 
to their best interest inside the church and outside the church. Well, what does that look like? Well, it looks like this. It means supporting the contact house so they can meet the needs of those in our community that struggle with food security. It means that we stand with Options Pregnancy Center and give to their needs with donations. Possibly for some, it might mean going down there and volunteering. It means projects like Operation Christmas Child. It means working with Compassion Canada and the outreaches they have. It means donating clothes and giving them away to those that are in need. It means speaking out against abortion. It it means speaking out against critical theory, whatever form it takes. Some will say, well, wait a second. That sounds like the social gospel. So, do I preach the social gospel? Yes, I do. If you mean by that, that Scripture is clear that we are to love our fellow man, that we're to be generous, we're giving to those in need, we're to be aiding those who struggle, whether mentally, whether physically, or whether emotionally. If it means that we have a responsibility to those who find themselves oppressed and treated unfairly, then the answer is yes. That's exactly what I preach. However, this cannot be divorced from love for God. It's not one or the other, it's both. Too often, we just try to go to one side. Matthew twenty-two thirty-four through 40, we read this. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest command in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the laws and the prophets. In the words of Hillel, those two commands, the rest is commentary. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, and if you're not familiar with that, it's in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, you can find the story. Here a lawyer wanted to justify himself, and he asked Jesus a question. He says, who's my neighbor? So Jesus answers with a story. And the story is about a man making his way along a roadway when a set of robbers or thieves come on him. They rob him and they beat him and they leave him on the side of the road lying there for dead. Didn't matter to them. They got what they want. Soon come two travelers at independent times, but there comes a priest and a Levite, both of the religious order. Each one comes upon the scene as they're traveling And as they come across on the scene, they both see the man at the side of the road. And each passes by on the other side. Now, we're not talking about a road like the 402 or even Highway 21 when they pass by. We're talking possibly a small enough that it might pass two hay wagons side by side going in different directions. 
And why they passed by on the other side? Perhaps they didn't want the, the, to be bothered for the injured man to reach out and grab for them. Perhaps they were looking at him and said, well, he's possibly dead and I don't want to become ceremonially unclean. Then came along a third person, and that was the Samaritan. Considered unclean by the Jews. Of Jewish descent, but they had years ago intermarried with the Assyrians when they settled northern Israel. They had built their own temple. They did no longer worshipped in Jerusalem. So they were considered the enemy. Samaria, a foreign land. Jews would rarely pass through Samaria. They would rather go around it to get to Galilee. And it was the Samaritan, as despised enemy, who turns out to be both the neighbor and the hero. He comes to the aid of the man beaten. And it's in this short story that Jesus expands the definition for the readers and listeners in those days to us today, exactly who is our neighbor. So with an understanding of our neighbor being very large, who lives in our neighborhood, that leads to the question, what does it look like to love our neighbor? Jesus has touched on this a bit, but this morning we're going to expand it. So if you turn with me to Romans Chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Romans 12, 9 through 21. And I like how the ESV inserts a, a header for it. Marks of the true Christian. And it's also interesting that this falls after a therefore in the book of Romans. In Romans, the first 11 chapters, Paul spends much of the time teaching doctrine. And then as he comes to chapter 12, he turns his attention and he's saying, okay, all this doctrine that I've taught you, this is what it means when you live every day. This is how it works out in a believer's life. Starting in verse 9. Let love be genuine. So don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Or, or never be lazy and work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. In verse 12, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Or you might say, bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be, don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think of yourself as a know-it-all. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. 
If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Contrary to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. So for, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, but do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Sound familiar? It should. Scripture is consistent. Love for God should always lead to love for others. Now, that doesn't mean that you check your doctrine at the door, as some would, but it also doesn't mean that you put love on a shelf either. Is it hard? Yes, it's very hard in our culture. It's hard to know when and how to engage. It's hard to know when you're casting your pearls before the swine. I find it hard to love those who take advantage of the poor in the name of trying to help the poor. And that happens a lot. It happens with our governments too. I find it hard to love those who would kill children in the womb of a mother, who abuse children. And I find it hard to love those who abuse and confuse children with gender theories that are contrary to biblical teaching. I, but that doesn't change the fact that I am to show love. And I believe that's why a large portion of the sermon, especially in Matthew, gives itself to prayer. That's why prayer is so prominent. See, on our own, you and I will fail. We're to go to God and we're to seek wisdom and strength to live out His calling to love others in our lives. Richard Wormbrand, along with his wife Sabina, uh, Jewish Christians who founded Voice of the Martyrs, ministry many of you may be familiar with. Sabina tells a story that occurred close to the end of World War II. It happened in Romania where they lived, and they had watched all the destruction around them. They had watched uh, so many people abused and killed just for being Jews. The minister and his wife worked hard to rescue as many Jews, even they themselves were Jewish, and to give relief to those who were oppressed by the Third Reich. When the tide of war changed in Romania... Another group soon became the oppressed. Yes, the, the Red Army had come in and they had liberated them from the Nazis, but that didn't mean everything was good again. That didn't mean that there was law and order. See, the, the former Nazi soldiers, along with the brown shirts, they were the young boys that they used to bring into the youth brigades and, and, and hype them up to do things. Well, those youth recruits and those soldiers had now become the new people to be hunted down and killed like wild animals. And as Richard confidently told someone when asked, how could you do this? How can you aid who used to be or who is your enemy? Richard said this, when others are bent on revenge, on ways of doing more evil than their neighbor, God gives to some the ability to return good for evil. I want to read from Sabina's book, The Pastor's Wife. She recalls this. 
Once three German officers hid in a tiny outhouse in our yard. It was a dark little garage half buried in snow. We fed them and we emptied their buckets at night. We hated their former atrocities. We ourselves had been the victims. But now we talked to them, trying to make them feel less like caged beasts. One evening when I called, their captain said, I must tell you something that's on my mind. You know that it is death to shelter a German soldier, yet you do it, and you are Jews. I must tell you that when the German army recaptures Bucharest, which it surely will, I will never do for you what you have done for us. Sabina tries to explain, I am your host. My family were killed by the Nazis. But even so, so as long as you are under my roof, I owe you not only protection, but respect due a guest. You will suffer. The Bible says, Whoso sheds man's blood, by man his blood be shed. I will protect you as much as I can from the police, but I cannot protect you from the wrath of God. The officer was confused why a Jewess would risk her life for an anti-Semitic, unbelieving German soldier. Her response was this. The word of God in the Old Testament states, Give love to strangers, for you too have been strangers in the land of Egypt. She went on to explain that Jesus would forgive even the worst of sins if he was to repent. And he asked her if he would repent. Hillel had it mostly right. That which is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. That is the entire Torah, and the rest is commentary. Now go and study. He missed a few things, though. He missed the gospel. The needed and coming redemption, which can be found throughout the Old Testament. He missed how you and I fall short of God's standard, leaving us standing in our sin. That was remedied for you and I through the birth of a Savior, through a life that was lived, and through a death on the cross. And through confession of our sin and our need for a Savior and through repentance, we can come into faith and we can be cleaned of all our sin. But once God has taken hold in our lives and once God has shed his love in our life and in our hearts, we are to love others. We are to actively love others, treating them as we would like to be treated, treating them with respect, no matter how unlovable they may be. That is what you and I are called to an act of love to the unlovable. Who in your life this morning is that unlovable person? Who in your life is that this morning that needs the love of Christ? To whom do you pray for on a regular basis that needs to know Jesus Christ? Who do you give and help without thinking of getting anything in return? To whom do you pray to 
for and pray for opportunities to be able to. And I say opportunities because it isn't just we have this idea that we share the gospel once and the person hears it and goes, oh, I want to accept Jesus. Well, that rarely happens. What usually happens is they watch the life of a Christian. They're exposed to the gospel. And then over time, there's a process as God works on their heart. To whom do you pray for? For those opportunities to impact a life so that that person or family may come to know Jesus Christ as personal Savior. We're called to proactively love others. And if we truly believe the people around us are bound for an eternity, a Christless eternity, separated from God, how loving are you and I if we do not respond to that? How loving are you and I if we do not take time to pray and to love and to give and to share? Do we resemble our Father? That's what lay before us this morning. So I want you to just close your eyes and take a moment to silently reflect and to pray this morning, asking yourselves those questions. Am I a loving neighbor? Can people tell that I belong to the Heavenly Father? Do I resemble Him? And pray for wisdom to live that out. To live it out before others who need to know Christ. And I know it's tough. Ask yourself the question, how in the world can I love a sinner without loving this sin? Now that's the challenge. Just take a moment. Think about that. I'll close, for, I'll close in prayer in just a moment. Father in heaven, we live in a world that has not just walked away from you. It seems nowadays it runs in the opposite direction. Father, so much has changed in the last decade, even in the last five years. Father, with those changes and the sexualization of our children and the, the confusion that even the state wants to put on our children, Father, it can be difficult as we look around at others who we view walk so far from you and can be so antagonistic towards the gospel of Jesus Christ and so antagonistic to what we would call a set of values and morals that come directly from you that it can at times be hard to love people it can be hard to love those who are near us and our families and it can be hard to love those in our neighborhoods that are disagreeable. And it can be extremely hard for those who actively seek to destroy Christian values and who live out so contrary lives to Scripture. 
But Father, we are told to love them. I ask that you will give each of us the wisdom that we need to engage our neighbors and to engage our families, to engage the world around us, to be able to share with them their to help them understand their greatest need. And that's first the need of repentance, their need for salvation, and their need to grow in a relationship with you through through your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray for opportunities for each one of us to influence and to love the unlovable around us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.